Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Summertime is a welcome time to be outside, but lurking around us are pests that carry dangerous diseases. A new CDC report finds disease cases from mosquito, tick, and flea bites more than tripled over a 13-year period. Now, how do we keep ourselves and our families safe? Coming up, we talk with retired Yale epidemiologist Dr. Derlin Fish about what factors are driving the increase of diseases and what can be done about it. Should the federal government be doing more? First, mosquitoes can carry many diseases like malaria, an infection that affects more than 3 billion people. Drugs have helped curb the deaths caused by malaria, but what happens when these medicines aren't effective? That's what's happening in parts of Asia and Africa. You can join the conversation today, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I want to welcome uh, to the show from Australia by phone Dr. Jackson Thomas, Assistant Professor and Senior Lecturer in Pharmacy at the University of Canberra in Australia. Dr. Thomas, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We understand that one of the reasons that malaria is still deadly in this country is because of counterfeit drugs. How big of a problem is it? Uh, it is a substantial problem. Um, as we highlighted in the study, uh, between 2000 and 2015, there has been a substantial reduction in malarial death, approximately 60 percentage uh, death, reduction in death between 2000 and 2015, but still around 216 million cases of malaria reported in um, 2016 and uh, for, uh, approximately half a million people still die because of it, and some of it can be prevented by providing good quality medications to start with. So in the research that you and your team worked on, how are some of these uh, counterfeit drugs getting into, hand, into the hands of uh, people in countries uh, in Asia and in Africa? There is a huge rise in um, in the supply of counterfeit medications as a result of um, online pharmacies. But in this particular instance, um, to give you some numbers, uh, especially in mosquito, uh, especially in countries where malaria is um, prevalent, um, the, approximately 500 million people contract malaria every year, and there is a huge demand for good quality medications to uh, to manage this condition. So when the supply is not met with the demand, then often the local vendors uh, rely on what is available. And because of weaker economy, that could be a problem as well. So they look for better financial incentives. They buy from cheaper suppliers. And uh, the regulations in those countries are not rigorous enough uh, to keep uh, and I on the quality of medicine supply, plus uh, hot, humid conditions that can lead to degraded uh, medicines after um, released by manufacturers during storage and supply. So there are f- several factors which can lead to uh, 
lead to the poor um, quality medicines which are available in those regions leading to um, ineffective management of malaria and which can be prevented by providing good quality medications. Uh, counterfeit medications are a part of a bigger problem. So you were saying that if someone were to go to a pharmacy and they don't have the anti-malarial there, they rely on local vendors. Sometimes it could be uh, legit medicine that has been ex- it's expired, and then sometimes it can also involve people selling fake drugs. Uh, that's right. So perhaps we look at it this way. Uh, poor quality medicines, so they can be of uh, potentially three categories. One, uh, falsified or counterfeit medications like fake currency. Uh, so they are uh, produced with a malicious intent. There may not be a, a therapeutic content at all, or if it is there, it may be present at a very low quality and quantity. Uh, the second category, substandard medicines, uh, which are produced by legitimate producers, but often not compliant with the industry requirements, uh, such as including um, low-quality uh, pharmaceutical substituents in the production. And the third category, produced by legitimate producers, met with all industrial requirements, but after the supply, during storage or during supply, uh, they are exposed to poor um, or extreme uh, atmospheric conditions and they degrade during supply and storage and leading to uh, a poor quality product, which then uh, leading to a, um, a therapeutic failure later on. Now, uh, Dr. Jackson Thomas, again, Assistant Professor and Senior Lecturer in Pharmacy at the University of Canberra in Australia. Uh, why did you and your team decide to focus on this? Uh, because we know that there are anti-malarials out there, but um, you know there are still people that are getting sick and not being able to access medicine? Uh, I, <clears throat> um, I think uh, uh, this... Uh, problem needs more attention. There has been a lot of initiatives um, uh, at a global scale, but we still need uh, uh, probably a nimble technology like a smartphone device which can track uh, some of these issues uh, uh, and and uh, send a message uh, to the consumer, probably provided by the manufacturer to, to establish the authenticity of the medicines. So, uh, around um, around this issue, there is more public awareness required. So as, as a researcher, my societal obligation to highlight the problem and uh, not just that, uh, degraded medications and counterfeit medications, which can cause fatality. Uh, to give you an example, uh, some of the antibiotics, um, to give you a specific example, tetracycline, uh, the degraded product can lead to a kidney failure. So uh, at a global scale, this issue has been poorly researched, so there is more work required to attract more uh, political commitment, more R&D funding in terms of um, developing a nimble technology uh, to identify poor quality medications. Um, and malaria is one uh, example we can cite uh, as a convincing case uh, but there are other um, other categories of counterfeit medications which can cause uh, considerable fatality. 
You mentioned that the importance of uh, your role as a researcher to raise awareness and to be able to study this, also uh, accessing a type of technology uh, to to find out like what is effective uh, out there for people. But what about the role of governments? Because uh, this is a, a problem that happens in, in many countries. Some governments are at the table, others uh, not so much. How do we break through that barrier? Uh, very, very uh, important question. Um, at a global scale, Around 10% of the global uh, pharmaceutical market um, filled with the counterfeit medications. But this is a bigger problem in developing countries. Uh, in developed countries like the U.S., U.K., Australia, Canada, New Zealand, probably 1% that mostly come from online pharmacies, whereas in resource poor uh, se- uh, settings um, and in developed country, developing countries, uh, it can vary from uh, 10 to 30 percentage, depending on where you look at it. Mm-hmm. So what needs to be done? Uh, more tougher regulations, sanctions, penalties, um, more policing around, and um, more uh, rigorous uh, procurement policies to make sure that what is coming through uh, is of good quality. And we need more R&D investment in terms of uh, developing um, uh, track and trace devices so these uh, poor quality medications can be detected uh, in field setting readily and uh, and um, the supply can be uh, rectified as required. And there is a clear need to provide good quality medicines uh, to meet the requirement as well. When the supply is not met with the demand, then uh, because of desperation, uh, people turn on to um, what is available at a lower um, uh, lower cost. And uh, so uh, what can be done? Um, so th- there is already uh, quite a bit of work done by um, World Health Organization's uh, Bill and Melinda Foundation, uh, and also uh, U.S. President's in- initiative to provide better quality um, medicines to treat malaria, but more work required in terms of tougher sanctions, uh, more work required in terms of better R&D expenditure uh, to to uh, devise nimble technology so this uh, issue can be addressed better. And we're going to get more into that uh, coming up here on Where We Live. But I want to thank Dr. Jackson Thomas, Assistant Professor and Senior Lecturer in Pharmacy at the University of Canberra, joining us uh, by phone today from Australia. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, we're looking into the problem of counterfeit drugs. It's a global problem, uh, not just something that uh, is an issue in uh, places, uh, countries in Asia and countries in Africa. For more on this, I wanted to turn to our next guest, Dr. Mohamed Zaman, Howard Hughes, Medical Institute Professor of Biomedical Engineering and International Health at Boston University. He's an author of the new book, Bitter Pills, The Global War on counterfeit drugs. Uh, Dr. Zaman, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Lucy, for having me. It's a pleasure. So uh, Jackson Thomas did a good job laying out um, some of the issues with uh, counterfeit drugs, also expired drugs out there uh, in the marketplace. Uh, But you focused in on this uh, issue in this new book of yours. Respond to what uh, Dr. Thomas has been saying about this uh, proliferation of counterfeit drugs and why it's becoming a bigger problem. So... uh, 
Lucy, uh, let's take a step back. I think the, we have to recognize that this problem uh, transcends both time and space. What I mean by that is that the problem has been there uh, for as long as we have data. Some data is good, some is bad. But, for example, Homer talks about it in his, uh, in his book. And, and there is evidence of bad medicines and counterfeit medicines coming from uh, Peru to uh, Europe back in the Middle Ages when uh, there was a need for a new anti-malarial. And Chinchona bark or, or the Peruvian bark or the Jesuits bark was needed, so there was not enough supply, but the demand was huge. So there were these uh, charlatans who were selling it. And now we see another manifestation of the same problem, where supply and demand, as Dr. Thomas talked about, is an issue. There's also the other side of this is that is poor regulation. And then, of course, with the growing Internet commerce and things going under the radar continues to be a challenge. But what I want to sort of zero in in is what Dr. Thomas said is the issue of awareness and and the recognition that this is a truly global problem. Um, we in the U.S. are not immune from it either. There was a famous heparin case about a decade ago, most recently uh, in Massachusetts, where I live. There was a case of New England compounding pharmacy with vaccines and, meningi- uh, and fungal meningitis that led to the deaths of 80 people. Um, I grew up in Pakistan, and uh, just a few years ago, there was probably the worst public health tragedy in Pakistan, where about 200 people died in a matter of a week because of poor quality medicines. So it's really a truly a global problem, and it's it's perhaps uh, a tragedy that we don't get to hear about it as much as we need to to really address this issue, which is not just a public health issue, but also of fairness, of equity, of of justice. You brought up those two specific cases, uh, one in Lahore, which you detail in your book, also that closer to home for us here in Connecticut, uh, that uh, facility in uh, Massachusetts. So talk a little bit about how those two scenarios played out. So people took a certain type of medicine, they got sick in two different countries, but what are some of the... uh, uh, avenues in play to help deal with a con- whether there's a penalty for yeah. this being for this happening, and then how to prevent it from happening again. So you know the uh, in, in in both of these uh, things there was actually a common thread, and that was uh, I would say uh, lack of oversight and regulation and sloppy behavior. So. I think it is fairly well recognized in the case of Pakistan and also in Framingham and the New England uh, compounding pharmacy cases that it wasn't malicious intent to really deceive the customers and and sort of uh, make a buck. It was largely because quality standards were not being met. So that really connects the two stories together. Now, how they played out is is unfortunately also similar where there was an outbreak in, in Pakistan. This led to the deaths of about uh, 200 people in a short period of time who were not getting the medicine that they were getting. In fact, it was tainted, and same thing happened here in the U.S. as well. What, however, is different and rather problematic is that while the uh, the sort of the justice system in the U.S. did take course, it's still, uh, I think, um, uh, and, and still playing out um, in 2015, uh, the federal bankruptcy um, judge approved about 200 million settlement plan um, for the victims. In Pakistan, no such thing happened. The, the money that was given was very, very small. And after long, long sort of legal battles, and the company continues to function um, as if nothing had happened. Mm. So the problem is really, uh, as I said, universal. And I think this thing doesn't happen as often as 
um, and in, in the U.S. as it would in developing countries. But to say that it doesn't happen at all is not right. Uh, Dr. Thomas is right that it happens a lot more in low and middle income countries. But I don't think anybody is immune to it. Mm. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of discussion as there needs to be. When we go to the pharmacy or pick up any kind of medicine, uh, uh, you know, uh, at, on a shelf in a, in a CVS or a Walgreens, uh, there's a level of trust. When we open that bottle, we just assume that we follow the instructions, we take the medicine, we feel better. Um, when you're talking about this case in Lahore, for our listeners who may not have read your book, it's just out uh, in April, uh, but uh, these people were taking, tell us specifically the medicine that they were taking and why it made them sick. Yeah, you know, um, the, what happened in Lahore is, so, so think about it, this is a large urban center, the, the center in, in many ways of culture and language and, and um, sort of old ancient traditions in Pakistan on the eastern border, not very far from India. And in the center of the city, there's a hospital called Punjab Institute of Cardiology, and these people are, it's a public hospital, would go there to get their routine medicines. These are, people are ill, but not gravely ill. So they were getting the medicines for hypertension and other things, and the drug that they were going to get got tainted with an anti-malarial. Now, a blood thinning drug ended up having an anti-malarial. It got deposited in their bone marrow and led to sort of very, very sort of uh, painful uh, outcome. And in, in this case, um, deaths of about 213 people. Um, this, this issue was very troubling because the system didn't have enough checks and balances to test the drugs, but also to find out what was going on. So they had to be sent to the UK, and there was a lot of sort of public discussion, but nothing eventually got done in terms of fixing the system or the checks and balances in that regard. So, so that uh, incident itself really made a big impact on me. My father grew up in Lahore. He spent most of his life in Lahore. It's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful city, uh, one of my favorite cities in the world. And it really sort of got me thinking as to really how do you get to the bottom of the problem that is proliferating and is really making an impact on vulnerable people who trust the system, as you mentioned about CVS. So when we go to CVS or Walgreens or, or your pharmacy, there is a certain level of trust, and that trust is justified. I think there is every reason for you to be sort of um, trusting off the system that provides those medicines. Um, but if that trust is lost, then I think a lot um, is, is at stake, and that's just not, uh, shouldn't be acceptable. So you're talking about not just quality control at the pharmaceutical company that's making the drug, but then if there is an issue or even not, there's some kind of regulatory body within a state or a country that can follow up thoroughly where you're not waiting for results weeks and months on end. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's really a bottom-up approach where you create awareness on uh, this issue, uh, sensitize people that this is an issue that they need to demand quality, and then a top-down approach where you sort of hold states um, and institutions accountable if they're not doing their job. And I think both of these things are absolutely necessary. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today we're talking about the problem of fake and poor quality medicine that can cause a host of problems, especially in countries dealing with serious diseases like malaria. Now, do you think this doesn't affect us here in the U.S.? Well, according to the National Institutes of Health uh, report in 2012, the U.S. imports up to 80 percent of the ingredients that go into our medicine. On the phone with us is Dr. Mohammed Zaman, professor of biomedical engineering and international health at Boston University, author of the new book, Bitter Pill the global war on counterfeit drugs. When we come back from the break, we're going to learn more about his research into substandard and counterfeit medicines, and we're going to talk about the technology that's out there to help test and make sure that the medicine that we're taking is safe.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Earlier, we were learning about how ineffective drugs are one of the reasons malaria, a mosquito-borne disease, still causes deaths in places like Asia and Africa. How big of a problem is it? A study by the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, found one-third of anti-malarial medicines off the shelf in Asian and African countries were of poor quality or were just fake. This despite medications existing to prevent malaria deaths. Now, why is drug quality poor in places that need it the most? It's a question my guest tackled in his book, Bitter Pills, The Global War on Counterfeit Drugs. Dr. Mohammed Zaman is Howard Hughes Medical Institute Professor of Biomedical Engineering and International Health at Boston University. And you can also join the conversation, too. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, Dr. Zaman, we were talking about uh, different uh scenarios, uh, both in uh, Pakistan and here in, in New England, uh, with uh, medicine uh, that had uh, quality issues. Uh, your book opens up with three examples. Again, you're looking at uh, uh, where medicine stored in Ghana, also uh, the scenario that we mentioned in Pakistan. And then you talked about a case in Cape Cod uh, dealing with Viagra. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So uh, the case in Cape Cod actually is very interesting. Um, and also, I would say, a sign of the times where an individual sort of is selling, um, I would say, um, knockoffs or cheap knockoffs for a fraction of the price. Now, remember that whether it is Lipitor or it's Viagra, there is a huge demand. And you may or may not be able to get the prescription from your uh, physician. So that fuels this market. Uh, sort of this this black market or this sort of underground market. And with these internet pharmacies or anybody having the capacity to uh, really sell things off the internet, and and we all know how internet, how poorly regulated that is, people can really create a business. And that was the case in Cape Cod. And and unfortunately, that's not the only case. There was another case of a Utah man. There was another case in Colorado. And it really tells you that this problem is uh, proliferating with new avenues for commerce, which have done great things, but have also sort of fueled these uh, underground economies. And Viagra and Lipitor are two examples, but one can also imagine dietary supplements, um, sort of uh, things that people use for exercise and, and for recreational purposes. All of these things start to become really, really uh, challenging. And one other thing, I'm glad you mentioned um, this issue of uh, impact on the U.S., I think we have to think of it in a very holistic way because we often talk about, and your show has done a great job in raising the issue of antimicrobial resistance. Now, antimicrobial resistance is truly a global problem, but it doesn't really, I mean, these, these resistant bacteria don't need any visas or any passports. Because there's poor quality medicine in some other country, the bacteria become resistant there, and through people or other ways, they can come to the U.S. So, the issue is really uh, global in that sense. And one of the drivers of antimicrobial resistance is poor quality medicine. So just as subtherapeutic is bad, poor quality is bad in the same way. Uh, so to be a little more detailed in, in what you're saying, um, from what we were reading also in your book and in other places, some of this poor quality medicine might have just a little bit of uh, what's in an anti-malarial and someone takes it and then that can then uh, cause uh, resistance to develop uh, with and, and also people can get sick and die versus uh, being able to pre prevent that illness. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you're really putting the entire arsenal of your drugs at risk. Um, so just as you would say that don't take antibiotics just for one day when 
you need it for six or seven or ten days. And we know that very well this happens in TB, that this is one of the main drivers for TB resistance. You can say the same thing, that you can t- keep taking the drug for five days, but if it only had 10%, it's the same thing as taking it only for a day. And, and then you're really sort of making uh, people all around the world, whether they are in Connecticut or in Massachusetts or in Canberra, Australia, or in Papua New Guinea, equally vulnerable. So it really has long-term manifestations of this challenge. Uh, in your book, you also talk a little bit about the life of a pill and uh, where and how pills are manufactured. Depending on where that is, the process is very different. Can you give us an example? Yeah, so uh, there was a, a tragedy of uh, uh, cough syrup in Panama, which led to the deaths of um, about uh, several dozen people and, and uh, sort of uh, got hundreds of people, hundreds of kids sick. And that cough syrup started off in China in multiple places went through uh, Spain and ended up in Panama. Even within China, these individual components were sourced from different places. And the problematic thing was glycerine, which is used often in many of the syrups. And there was a gentleman who was using basically coolant, your your, uh, sort of antifreeze in the car, as a substitute for glycerine, giving it to the company that was making the next a set of products, and then it went to another company, and they were putting things together, and then there was another company that was putting things further together. So it's truly distributed, and any weak link in that chain that is not regulated or has nefarious interests can make the entire process very compromised. So this was a very specific case where one particular ingredient coming from a one particular source led to the deaths of people that were not even on the same continent. When we're looking at the people um, developing these counterfeit drugs, getting them into the marketplace, this is big money business we're talking about. There, And how does that play into corruption in certain countries where maybe there is some kind of authority that's to be looking into uh, where the medicine's coming from, but uh, you know, there's a stronger power at play, and that's money. Absolutely. You know, this is, this is what makes the problem... Uh, very difficult to tackle, and and part of the goal of the book is to really raise awareness in that regard. So money is a strong and an unfortunate incentive in this regard. So there is um, an estimate of about $75 billion worth of drugs uh, annually are uh, compromised. So basically that is $75 billion lost uh, by the health systems, $75 billion that are sort of... uh, making an impact on uh, making health of individuals uh, much worse. Or you can think about it that there's $75 billion to be made by people who have poor um, sort of, uh, I mean, who who deal in this nefarious and dark trade. But that's not the only thing, uh, Lucy, I think we have to think about, because there is, as Dr. Uh, Thomas mentioned very eloquently, that there is the issue of substandard medicines, which are not made with the desired quality in mind. There's also degradation because, as in we saw in Ghana, and I talk about this in the book, that the drugs that were stored were stored at what we would call 100 or 105 degrees Fahrenheit, whereas some of these should have been in the refrigerator, and then they would degrade as well. And the entire uh, sort of uh, gamut of this challenge is all the way from nefarious interests and corruption to sort of the state looking the other way, to the lack of technology to test it, to poor maintenance and storage, that's what makes the problem fairly hard to track. But I think there are solutions. We just have to think hard and create resources to address those. 
Dr. Mohammed Zaman is the Howard Hughes Medical Institute Professor of Biomedical Engineering and International Health at Boston U, also author of the book Bitter Pills, The Global War on Counterfeit Drugs. Before we run out of time, let's get into some of the solutions out there. Uh, you are also working on a technology that could help test the, the efficacy of these drugs out there. That's right. Um, Lucy, we have, for the last, uh, I would say, five or six years, have been developing technology, being very cognizant of what exists on the market and what doesn't. So what doesn't exist is a quantitative system that affordably, easily, and with minimal training can tell you how much active ingredient is in there. So when an antimalarial should have 80 milligrams, does it really have 80 milligrams or is it only 40 or is it only 10? Because a yes or no solution, as we talked about a few minutes ago, is not going to be enough. If you were just testing that uh, it does have some, it doesn't have uh, enough, that is not enough. You need to know exactly how much is in there so you can come up with a policy and a strategy. So our technology called PharmaCheck is in advanced stages of development and we've conducted um, sort of extensive trials in, in West Africa and Ghana. Uh, and I talk about that in the book as well. Uh, there are other technologies as well uh, that are complementing ours, some at the front line, at, for example, customs, some much more advanced and would need labs. And there's sort of a, a spectrum of technologies, and I think that's exactly what is needed. Things that would be at the forefront, things that would be at the hospitals, things that might be uh, a little bit more um, sort of uh, removed uh, and at a higher level. But at, with technology, you also need financial solutions, you need awareness, and you also need to sort of really demand quality. So I think we have to sensitize people that this is not acceptable, that this that they deserve and demand better quality. And we should say that um, openly so that we can generate enough pressure on people. And I think uh, sort of public pressure does act in some ways in a very positive way. Uh, one of the things where we know uh, there has been public pressure and demand is ivory trade, uh, where we know that people say that ivory, uh, anybody dealing in ivory is not uh, sort of working with the highest principles of ethics and morality and humanity. Uh, there are other examples. For example, in the aviation industry, there is a recognition that we don't want to be dealing with poor quality parts. So there are bits and pieces of uh, examples, both high-level and bottom-up, that have value, and I think they need to be explored along with technology that sort of addresses these issues. Uh, is there a lot of investment in this type of uh, research and development uh, for this technology that you, that you mentioned? Unfortunately not, uh, and that, that continues to be a challenge. I think we have to have more resources. There are some resources, but there isn't um, as much as we would like to have, neither from the government nor from the private sector. Um, people tend to focus on diseases, uh, so there would be money in malaria or HIV and TB, which is um, uh, necessary. But this is a problem that really sort of undercuts all of those efforts. Poor quality medicines really is not a malaria-only problem or an HIV-only problem or an antibiotic-only problem. They are truly a global problem in that sense. And I think that is something we have to recognize and invest more because otherwise all of our investments, as you mentioned earlier, uh, would be at stake. I mean, there was a report um, funded uh, again by the Wellcome Trust and the National Institutes of Health showing that our investments in malaria, decades of investments in malaria, are at risk of uh, sort of reversing the gains that we have made if we don't improve the quality of medicines. What's the role of the pharmaceutical companies in all of this? So pharmaceutical companies come in many sort of sizes and uh, with many different incentives. I think pharmaceutical companies have to be part of the solution. That includes large pharmaceutical companies. 
that have sort of deep pockets and big businesses, as well as small generics. The generics play an important role um, in making drugs affordable. And I think they have to be on the, uh, they have to have a seat on the table as how do they see this. And we have to recognize that they have uh, played a positive role in many cases and also a negative role. And we really need to sort of emphasize that they have to be there with regulators, with technology uh, developers, with, uh, uh, I would say, uh, in, in-country FDAs, um, as well as the World Health Organization. Uh, and I think many in pharmaceutical companies are also worried about this. The, the case of Viagra or Lipitor is, um, is an example where Pfizer is really worried because it really starts to affect their market and their trust and their brand. So they are concerned about it. Um, and, and they have to be part of the solution. And, and same thing with the small pharmaceutical companies in India, China, Brazil, Vietnam that are making generics and really sort of uh, making a very positive impact. But they have to be there on this, uh, on this problem. And when we look at developing countries, uh, when we talk about awareness, and again, if people are willing to uh, take a crack at this problem, are, you, are we seeing that in specific countries? Um, there are some good examples. I think there are some efforts uh, in, in some developing countries. They have started to sort of recognize this. Um, and there is uh, some positive development. But I would say that there is still, it's very nascent, and it really needs to sort of be supported, and otherwise there is a chance of it sort of uh, becoming very fractured and not necessarily reaching the level um, as, as it uh, should. It needs support from the government sector. It needs support from the public sector. It needs support from outside agencies as well, um, such as the WHO and other groups that can uh, stabilize the system and make sure that the gains that they're making in improving quality are not lost. It seems that a lot has been written about this, including uh, your new book, again, uh, Bitter Pills, The Global War on Counterfeit Drugs. But do you feel like enough is being done in the sense of you know, when we're here in the U.S. that this is not an issue that impacts us, even though we know in your book you've laid out um, how this can uh, touch us here? I think I think we have to recognize that there is uh, some uh, awareness, but not enough. And and it has to be through books. It has to be through modern mechanisms of media engagement in schools, uh, sort of with, with the um, sort of younger students, and also through uh, public awareness that has to be done in ways that are effective. And the reality, Lucy, honestly, is that if I were to talk to uh, an average student of mine or or um, somebody I happen to know, they wouldn't be aware of this problem. So clearly, uh, not enough is being done. Uh, for us to take action. And I think that needs to change. And, and I'm really glad that your program is looking at this issue in a very broad sense, because that needs to be done. And, it, and, and whether or not we think that this is only a problem of low-income countries, uh, sooner or later, it's going to become our problem as well. In, in many ways, it already is, but it's going to only become worse with internet commerce, with antimicrobial resistance, and also sort of really having an impact in multiple dimensions. Mm. Dr. Mohammed Zaman is Howard Hughes Medical Institute Professor of Biomedical Engineering and International Health at Boston University and author of the book Bitter Pills, The Global War on Counterfeit Drugs. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we turn to a new CDC report that finds illnesses from mosquitoes, ticks, and flea bites have tripled in the U.S. over 13 years. Now, what's behind the increase and what can be done to prevent more Americans from getting sick? We want to hear from you, too. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. 
I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Where We Live's Making Her Story series highlights the career paths of prominent women with ties to Connecticut. Join me next Tuesday, May 15th at 6 p.m. for a conversation with Canton, Connecticut native Carolyn Miles. She's now president and CEO of Save the Children. You can learn more and reserve tickets at WNPR.org. And coming up Monday, the Connecticut General Assembly's legislative session has ended. On the next Where We Live, we're going to find out what lawmakers did and did not accomplish. That's on Monday. Now, Right now, we're turning our attention to the fact that with every summer, we hear warnings about the importance of watching out for ticks and wearing bug repellent. Now, a report from the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention finds illnesses in the U.S. caused by mosquitoes, ticks, fleas have tripled over a 13-year period. Should we be alarmed? And what should the federal government be doing to curb this problem? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome into the conversation. Dr. Derlin Fish, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health, joining us today from the studios of Yale University in New Haven. Dr. Fish, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. I mentioned this report uh, about this uh, triple increase uh, over 13 years. Uh, uh, what's your take on this, and should we be alarmed? Well, the, uh, the report's no surprise to those of us who have been working in this field. We've seen this coming for, for many years. Should we be alarmed? Um, well, it depends on where you live. and <laughs> It depends on what time of the year. Um, I think there's cause for concern because uh, we really don't have very good methods of controlling these insect-borne diseases. You said that um, depending on uh, someone's background, you've known this was coming for some time. So let's talk a little bit about some of uh, the uh, increases. And when we look at uh, mosquitoes and ticks, what are some of the diseases that we should be worried about? Well, the mosquito-borne diseases, um, everyone knows about the, the recent epidemics of Zika and chikungunya and the epidemic of dengue fever in the, in the Caribbean. Um, these are all uh, viruses uh, that actually have been introduced from outside uh, the Western Hemisphere, and they can cause you know, raging you know, epidemics. We're extremely vulnerable to those kinds of introductions. West Nile virus would be in that category. Everybody remembers what happened in 1999 when West Nile virus arrived in, in New York City. It was, it was a frightening experience. I think we can see um, this happening again. There's a lot of viruses out there. Um, that could be introduced, um, and I think we'll, there's always a chance of uh, new viruses showing up. Uh, you mentioned uh, Zika and West Nile. Uh, Americans may not be aware of yellow fever and also this Powassan. I think it was uh, there was some attention last year, and that's related to ticks. Tell us about those two diseases. Well, yellow fever has been around for a long time. Um, but uh, there's been recent uh, emergence of yellow fever in Africa and in Brazil. And that's another, uh, another uh, virus that's transmitted by the same species of mosquitoes that transmit chikungunya, zika, and, and, and dengue. So um, that, uh, there's some concern about that. Even though there's a, vir uh, a vaccine for yellow fever, uh, the, the epidemics can really kind of overwhelm the uh, vaccine supply. So there's certain concern about that. Mm. Um, I don't, people in, in the Northeast and Connecticut particularly, I don't think have to worry about it too much, but in the southern states it might, might be something that, to keep an eye on. Powassan virus is a totally different story. That's a tick-borne virus, and that's a virus that's been around for a long time, since 1959, I believe, and 
uh, but it's recently become more prevalent because the deer tick, which transmits Lyme disease, is now also transmitting this Powassan virus. And we hadn't seen that before. It's a recent uh, event. And everybody knows uh, what a, a problem Lyme disease has been. There's an epidemic of Lyme disease been going on for like 30 years. And these ticks have picked up, you know, a new virus. And so and while these Lyme disease and other uh, tick-borne diseases are usually treatable, uh, this being a virus, there's no treatment and there's no vaccine. So um, this is a potentially a very important uh, emerging disease mm -hmm. here in the Northeast in the Upper Midwest. When we look at, again, uh, these cases, uh, these disease cases uh, uh, tripling in the last 13 years, uh, some of the causes for why that is, we often hear about how ticks the range is, is, continues to move uh, uh, further and further. But when we look at mosquitoes, the fact that many of us travel, these are all um, factors into these increases? Yeah, there's basically two different things going on. One, um, with the mosquito-borne diseases, uh, most of those are transmitted by a uh, single species of, of mosquito that was introduced during you know, colonial times four or five hundred years ago and it's still uh, prevalent in the southern states and throughout you know, Latin America. And so the vector is there, the mosquitoes around, um, but, we, uh, but, but these viruses are transmitted between people and mosquitoes back to people again. So unless people are infected, you know, mosquitoes don't have anything to transmit. So what happens is, what's been happening is that jet travel has brought visitors in from around the world that have been infected with these uh, viruses, and they infect the local mosquito population, and then those locally infected mosquitoes can transmit to local people and cause an epidemic. And then that's that's what happened with uh, chikungunya virus. Uh, traveler, uh, French traveler arrived in, in uh, St. Martin, and that single event uh, caused a huge epidemic all over the Caribbean and Central and South America. And even in the U.S. there were cases. This is where we live. Uh, joining us from the studios at Yale University is Dr. Derlin Fish, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. As we talk about this uh, recent report from the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention about uh, disease cases caused by uh, mosquitoes and ticks and fleas uh, uh, tripling over the last uh, 13 years. Now, here's CDC Director Robert Redfield speaking about during this press briefing, which outlines, again, this report that they've just uh, released. We know that mosquitoes, ticks, and fleas are widespread and can be difficult to control. This growing burden has put increased demands on state and local health departments and vector control organizations. We must continue to provide the support to enhance their ability to combat these vector-borne diseases. Since Zika emerged in 2016, the resources that were provided for a national response have helped strengthen the state of prevention and control capacity. Our nation is better prepared today than we were a year ago. So what more can be done to protect the public health of our nation? It will take all of us working together to prevent and control diseases from mosquitoes, ticks, and fleas. And there is a role for everyone. Now, Dr. Fish, what do you think should be the role of the CDC? How effective do you think that agency has been in uh, combating uh, this particular issue we're talking about today? Well, you know, I think we heard those same words 20 years ago when West Nile virus came to New York. Um, there was a surge of interest, but it, it waned. 
Uh, now we're seeing it again with Zika. Uh, I, I suspect it's going to the interest is going to wane again, and I'm not sure how many epidemics it's going to take before we really wake up and take these uh, threats, uh, you know, seriously. It's true that the uh, public health infrastructure really is not capable, I don't believe, of combating effectively these insect-borne diseases. We don't have uh, good, efficient, and environmentally sound methods of controlling ticks or mosquitoes. So uh, I think there's a, there's a lot to do. There's a lot of research to do to develop new technologies, and there's also a lot of reinforcement and training of people in, in public health in, in entomology and surveillance for ticks and mosquitoes. We often hear from public health uh, experts about the need for more research, but there aren't enough dollars to back that kind of research up, Dr. Fish? There are a lot of dollars. My opinion is not that's not being spent in the right direction. Uh, I, so I view these diseases as medical problems with environmental solutions. Uh, unfortunately, most of the research dollars is going into the to the, into the medical aspects of it and not the environmental aspects of it. I mean, these, these, these ticks and mosquitoes occur out in the wild, in the field. And that's where the research needs to be done to try to be able to manage the, these uh, insects in an intelligent and environmentally compatible way. And I think that's, that's, the, big, that's the big problem. We can't, we can't control ticks, for instance, uh, other than using chemical insecticides. And, you know, after 30 years of West Nile, or 30 years of Lyme disease, one would think that we would have no more about these ticks and be able to come up with some environmentally sound and effective way of controlling them. But, but we can't. And these ticks have spread all over the U.S., uh, Northeast and upper, upper Midwest and into Canada. And we haven't been able to do anything about it. So you're saying instead of uh, spending a lot of, of research into the disease is more about how to address these vectors, so addressing deer populations for one. Could that be a solution? Well, that gets to be a little bit controversial. You're, uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of we don't, there's a lot of we don't, mm-hmm. there's a lot we don't know about these ticks. Mm-hmm. We really don't understand how these, what the natural regulate, regulatory mechanisms are for ticks. You know, you could ask the question, you know, why are there so many ticks? Or you could ask the question, why are there so few ticks? And, and we don't know the answer to that simple, simple question. If we did, we'd have a better insight as to how to manage them, whether deer is the appropriate way or some other animal or some other biological means. You said that um, the one example I gave is, is controversial, but then I guess what is the, the breaking point if we know that these tick-borne diseases uh, cases are increasing? Uh, people don't want them. They don't want to get sick. They don't want their loved ones to get sick. Uh, this Powassan it seems uh, pretty dangerous if someone were to, to get that particular disease. Uh, I guess how do we move the conversation forward, Dr. Fish? Well, again, I think it's, it's a matter of trying to get the, uh, you know, the right uh, disciplines involved, you know, ecology, environmental science disciplines, people who know how the natural world works and how it might be manipulated or changed in some way to reduce the prevalence of these uh, insects that transmit disease. Mm-hmm. And, and tips for our listeners, again, with uh, the warmer weather here, uh, many of us live in New England because we love to be uh, in out the outdoors uh, during the summer and fall months. Uh, they don't want to be, be stuck in their house. So uh, what should they, uh, what do they need to, to know? Well, they're just 
unfortunately, they're the standard recommendations that's been going on for, you know, half a century. Wear repellents, uh, wear long uh, sleeve shirts, long pants, you know, cover yourself. Don't let ticks and mosquitoes bite you. You know, it's really hard to enjoy the out-of-doors when you're dressed like that. Uh, those those preventive measures are not that uh, effective, but, but you know, we have to do something. And unfortunately, the first line of defense is, is personal protection. We don't, again, we don't have ways of managing ticks and mosquitoes in the environment, so the, the problem is, you know, dumped on individual people. You know, you protect yourself from uh, the environment, from, from these ticks and, and mosquitoes that could carry disease. I want to thank Dr. Derlin Fish, Professor Emeritus of Epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health, joining us today from the studios of Yale University in New Haven. Dr. Fish, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Special thanks to Carmen Baskoff and Jean Amatruda. You can learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have a great weekend. <laughs>